I know our legs are getting tired, but if you're able to remain standing out of respect for God's word, I'll read to you now. Our sermon text, Mark 10, 32 to 45. This is the inspired word of God. They were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones, their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant." And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and for practice. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me once more? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak through it to us even now. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see Jesus in all of his glory. For We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, today's passage deals essentially, I think, with three motivations. Three motivations that often are are the motivations that shape what we do and how we live our lives. And I think that each of us is faced with the decision, moment by moment, which of these motivations will be the ones that direct our steps. Sometimes it will be fear. Sometimes it will be selfishness. Sometimes it will be Christ-likeness. Those are the three things we're going to look at today in this passage specifically, starting off with fear The comedian Jerry Seinfeld once famously noted that according to most studies, the number one fear that most people have is public speaking. Number two on the list was death, which means that if you go to a funeral, you would rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy, right? Well, in reality, there's plenty of other things that we're afraid of, not just death, Uh, we, we, we have uh, all kinds of things that can, can create anxiety in us, create fear, and can cause us to live our lives in a certain 
way. Anything that we don't like really can do this, can't it? Uh, have you ever had something that you needed to do? It wasn't really an optional thing. It's something that had to get done, but it was really unpleasant. Something that you really didn't want to do. Something that, that you found to be not very enjoyable. And you, you, you end up doing all kinds of other things, right? Other things that normally you don't like doing, right? Because you'll do anything except this thing that is there before you. I know we've all been there before. In today's text, Jesus finds a task before him that is similarly unpleasant. But the way he responds to it is amazing. Verse 32, they're on the road going to Jerusalem. And we need to realize that this is not just any ordinary trip to Jerusalem. He's not headed there on a vacation. This is going to be Jesus' final trip to Jerusalem because he knows what waits, awaits him there in Jerusalem. It is the cross. It is where he will meet his death. It is a terrible reality. And yet he is not fearful. He's not selfish. How does he respond? Let's, let, let's see here. He says they're, they're going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Focused, as Luke puts it, he had set his face toward Jerusalem. He is setting the pace. After all, he is the good shepherd. The good shepherd leads us and protects us. The, the good shepherd takes care of us so that we don't need to live in fear. He provides for us so that we don't need to worry ourselves with being selfish. We've all heard the 23rd Psalm a thousand times, right? We're going to make it a thousand and one. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We've all heard it many times, Many of us have recited it. Perhaps we've memorized this beautiful passage. But the question I have for you today is quite simple. Do you believe it? Do you really believe it to be true? Do we really believe that Jesus cares for us and protects us? Do we really believe that Jesus loves us and provides for us? Because if we really do, Really, at the core of our being, if we really believe this, then it will change how we live our lives. It's, it's not just about confessing it. The disciples confessed a good confession, a sound confession. And yet, as we see in today's passage and many others, their confession and their actions did not match up. Sadly, it's the same for us oftentimes too, isn't it? We might have a fundamentally sound confession, and yet we wander off into sin and doubt so often. 
if you truly trust in the good shepherd, then you will expect him to lead the way. And even if that way should be through the valley of the shadow of death, you will trust his leadership, walking with him willingly along his ways and eagerly following his paths. But we see here in verse 32 that they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. Now don't get me wrong, there were good reasons to be fearful. Right? We, we could read in John chapter 9, which tells us how the Jewish authorities had agreed that if anyone proclaimed that Jesus was the Christ, they were to be thrown out of the synagogue. Right? All the opposition to Jesus is ratcheting up at this point. It is, it is about to culminate. Right? And there is a very real danger, earthly speaking, to following Jesus. And so Jesus, taking the 12 again, begins to tell them what was to happen to him. It's the third time in this section from chapter 8 to chapter 10 that Jesus has told them what awaits them in Jerusalem. The first one he told them about in chapter 8 talked about the necessity of what was lying ahead of him. The second one emphasized the certainty of what was to come about. And here this third time now in chapter 10 talks about its immediacy. It is right before them. Here it comes. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And he follows that up with a far more detailed explanation of what is going to happen than he has in the previous examples. He says the Son of Man will be delivered over to the priests and the scribes. Right? The religious authorities will have their way with him. And, and they will condemn him to death. And they will, they will deliver him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and ultimately kill him. More and more, it is coming into focus what exactly is going to happen. Jesus has a very clear picture of what awaits him. And it is horrific. Yet, as William Hendrickson notes, he does not retreat or even stand still with unflinching determination. He walks right into it, for he knows that this is necessary in order that his people may be saved. And that's where the good news comes. In the midst of all this darkness, in the midst of all this horror, in the midst of all this terrible news comes the good news. After three days, he will rise. And in that will be the vindication of all that Jesus has claimed. In that will be the, the vindication that he indeed is the Christ, that he indeed is the King. He will defeat no less an enemy than death. I don't know if you've been keeping score, but death has a pretty good record. Right? Ben Franklin once famously said, in this world nothing can be certain except death and taxes. Right? And some people get a really good uh, accountant and they get out of that taxes thing. Right? But, but no matter how good your accountant is, right, you're not going to get around death. But that's what Jesus was claiming. He was claiming that he would indeed defeat death. And so if we want to be kind and generous to the disciples, we can kind of understand why they didn't quite get what Jesus said, even though he told them again and again and again. 
because what he was saying seemed ridiculous. Surely he must mean metaphorically. Surely he must mean some kind of illustration for something else. Surely he must mean figuratively. No, Jesus meant on the third day he would physically rise from the dead. Death could not contain him. Death could not control him. Death could not keep him down. For he had come to defeat death that we might have life. Last time Jesus talked about his humiliation and the disciples longed for exaltation. Remember they argued about who would be the greatest. The first time when Jesus talked about this stuff, you'll recall Peter rebuked him. I think we can make the argument that Peter was concerned about glory there as well. And now once again, it is the case. Luke explicitly tells us in Luke 18 that they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. And this ignorance that they had led not only to fear, it also leads to selfishness, right? Because that's really our natural tendency, isn't it? We see things with our eyes from our perspective, how it will affect us. So it's only natural in our sinful fallen state that we would look at the world selfishly. And James and John give us a perfect example here. The sons of Zebedee come up to him and say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And I, I was reminded as I read those words of, of Herod. You will recall when, when Herodias' daughter danced before him and his dinner guests and, and he told her, whatever you ask for, I'll give to you. Jesus is far more wise than Herod. It goes without saying. And so he says to them, what do you want me to do for you? They answer, grant us to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left hand, in your glory. Right? They, they want the, the best spots in the kingdom. They want to be his right-hand man and left-hand man, as it were. They were approaching Jerusalem, the royal city. Surely James and John and the other disciples no doubt expected Jesus to ascend to the throne. He was their Messiah. He was their, their king. He would claim the highest role in the land. They would be right there with him. They have glory on their minds. The whole section in chapters 8, 9, and 10, you'll recall, talk about what it really, truly means to be a Messiah, what it looks like to be a Messiah and what it looks like as a result to be a disciple. Specifically what it means is that both the Messiah and his disciples will suffer. Well, James and John are saying to him here, we'll be right there with you, Jesus, no matter what comes our way. But they're not thinking of suffering at all. They're thinking of being exalted. They're thinking of their own glory. And Jesus says to them in verse 38, you don't even know what you are asking. He asks, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? The language there of drinking the cup is, is idiomatic for undergoing an experience. And, and even when he talks about being baptized with the baptism there, it's a, a metaphorical use of its uh, often used with being overwhelmed or, or uh, you know, having 
dealing with waves of misfortune or sorrow, right? So, so what he's essentially saying is, are you able to undergo the experiences that I am going to undergo? Are you able to, to, to be crushed as I am going to be crushed? Are you able to suffer as I am about to suffer? And in a very real sense, without realizing it, what James and John are asking for is, Lord, let us be crucified with you, right? And, you know, it's not, maybe it's ironic, maybe it's coincidental, I don't know, it's obviously in the sovereign providence of God that there ended up being a cross on Jesus' right and a cross on Jesus' left, right? In essence, they're, they're asking, Lord, let, let me be on that cross on the right, let me be on that cross on that left, right? Because that is what they're asking for. The only true way to glory is through the cross. Jesus has called his disciples, not just the 12, but you and me, to take up our cross and to follow him. To be willing to die to ourselves. To be willing to die to our prideful inclinations. To be willing to die to our sinful desires. To die to our sense even that we can somehow be good enough to merit God's favor and his love. Even as we consider ourselves, we need to take our focus off of ourselves. We need to look away from ourselves. We, we need to heed Paul's words in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's what Jesus had told them or would tell them on, on the night when he was betrayed. We read the words from John earlier, right? He says that they must love one another, that they must serve one another, that they must be committed to one another over and above themselves. For James and John, as it is often the case with us, they're too concerned about what glory might be theirs without even realizing what they're saying. They say, we're able, we're able, Jesus. I can only imagine the sadness in Jesus' soul, his heart breaking as he responded to them that indeed the cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. And all of the apostles would ultimately be overwhelmed by oppression and persecution most of them would die as martyrs. They would indeed suffer with and for Jesus. But he says, to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus doesn't say, there are no better seats in the kingdom. That's not what he says. He actually says that it's not his to grant. And he said elsewhere, it says again here, that, that the best way to get the best seats is by stopping by stop trying to get the best seats, right? Don't be concerned about the best seats. Don't be concerned about what it does for you. Don't be concerned about that. Rather, concern yourself with serving others. Concern yourself with loving others. Concern yourself with helping others. Be committed to that. The other disciples didn't understand what Jesus had been saying any better than James and John did. We see that 
verse 41, when they heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And of course they were indignant, right? Because James and John thought of it before they did. <laughs> right? They got to Jesus, they eat Jesus first. And, and they asked him, and, and they got beat to the punch there, they thought. That's why they're indignant, because they're just as selfish as James and John are, and so are you and me. But selfishness is not the motivation we need. Christ-likeness is what is. Jesus called them to him in verse 42. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Within the church, we should look different. Right? The world has certain operating procedures, the way that the world works. Within the church, we should be different. It should not be a dog-eat-dog -dog world within the church. Right? No matter how selfish the world is outside, when we come together, we should see within one another a selflessness, a Christ-likeness within us. It should be a stark contrast. Whoever would be great among you, Jesus says, must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Right? The world is involved in a rat race to get to the top of the ladder. This shouldn't be our concern. As we read in Romans 12, 10, we should love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Jesus says, for even the Son of Man, that's Christ's self, favorite self-designation. He refers to himself as the Son of Man more than anything else. And he's uniquely here, the Son of Man, right? He doesn't just say a Son of Man, right? Which was a common term for a human being, right? If you're a Son of Man, it's just saying you're, you're a human. But Jesus says, I am the son of man. I am the perfect expression of humanity. Right? There has never been another man before Jesus who more perfectly exemplifies and, and fills out what it means to truly be human. Right? Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall had it for an instant for, for however long it was before they sinned. But once they sinned, they were broken. They were, in a very real sense, subhuman from that point on. And all of us as descendants of Adam and Eve, born in our sin and in our transgression, are subhuman as well. But Jesus is the true man. And so he says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the case of most commentators, they agree that this verse is the one verse, more than any other verse in the book of Mark, that, that is the key verse to the entire book. If you were to pick one verse that's the summary of Mark's message, it is this one. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It tells us exactly why Jesus came. It tells us not just the way we should live, but it proclaims the very power by which we might live that way. You see, the imperatives rest 
upon the indicatives. That's what Brian Chapel liked to say, one of my professors at seminary. See, the indicatives, what, what was true about Jesus is what supports the idea of what we do. Right? What is true leads to what we do. Now, of course, we can't do the one. We can't give our life as a ransom for many, right? And Romans 6 says the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. That's what the whole book of Hebrews is about, right? In Hebrews 7, it says there is no need like those of the high priest to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all. All when he offered up himself. In Hebrews 9, he entered once for all into the holy places. Again, in Hebrews 9, uh, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 10, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He is the, the perfect sacrifice and it has been completed. As Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. There is no way we can add to his sacrifice. That's why this table here is a communion table. That's what we call it. We don't call it an altar. right? Because an altar is somewhere where you offer a sacrifice. We have no more sacrifice to offer for our salvation. The one Eternal and infinite sacrifice has been made and it is sufficient. Of course, we cannot give our life as a ransom for many, but even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, we can surely do that. If the one perfect human being who ever lived, living the perfect expression of humanity, if if this one served, then surely it is not beneath us. For a number of years, I've, I've been blessed to be a part of uh, the Grand Blanc High School basketball program. And back in 2021, we won the state title, and it was a very joyful experience. We had lots of fun with that. And I've told people ever since that the reason that we won state that year wasn't because we had the most talent. We had a plenty of talented team but so were lots of other teams. I tell them the reason we won was because our two most talented players did two things. They were our hardest workers and they were our best passers. You see what they did? They they worked harder than anyone else and they shared the ball with other people better than anyone else. Right? They weren't concerned about scoring their points and getting their glory. They were about the team. They were about serving others. And and when they did that as our most talented players, then the lesser players who weren't quite as gifted quickly realized that they needed to do that as well. And they naturally became that way. They naturally began to be players who who shared the ball with one another, who, who raised the level of how hard they worked. The tone had been set And everyone followed. It's the same with Jesus. He who is the perfect man, God in the flesh, who has come to serve and to give himself up for us. If that's the case, how can any of us think that we are above serving, that we are above helping others, if we are above giving up our very selves for one another even? As Kent Hughes put it, 
The logic is this. If the one who created both the supernova and the firefly and holds them together by the word of his power became our servant, our waiter, how can we do less? Indeed, how can we do less? We have been called by his words. We have been instructed by his example. We have been motivated by his sacrifice. We have been empowered by his spirit. My friend Matt Redmond says, most of the time we have no plan or vision for how to live or what kind of person we want to be. We simply give in to habits or react to whatever happens to us. But it doesn't have to be that way. He's right. It doesn't have to be that way. Christ Jesus can be our vision. Christ-likeness can be our plan. We have are familiar with Romans 8, 28, one of the great verses of the Bible. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. But you know what the very next words are that Paul says after that? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That is our destiny in Christ Jesus So in closing, I have this. A few moments ago, I read from Philippians 2 how we are to eschew self-centeredness and conceit. How we're to consider others more important than ourselves. If if we continue to verse 5 and beyond, we receive further admonition from the Apostle Paul. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. See, we'll be changed when we see him as he truly is. That is why we pray and in a moment sing that he would be our vision. Not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped. Emptying himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in human likeness, humbling himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. That is what Jesus did for you. And when you realize that, really realize that, it forever changes the way you live your life and what you will do for him. Would you pray once more with me? Lord God, we pray that indeed you would fill our vision. May we behold your glory at the cross, the beautiful cross, the glorious cross where you bore our sin and paid our penalty. And beyond that, not just the cross, but the empty tomb where you rose from the dead, defeating death and freeing us from its bonds. May we look upward into heaven where you have ascended that you might be at the right hand of God even now making intercession for us and from there you will return. We look forward to that glorious day when you will return and set all things right and sin will be no more. Neither will there be death nor crying nor pain anymore. 
for the former things will have passed away. We long for that day, Lord. Be thou our vision, we pray. Amen.